Let's do it. Uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hello out there on the internet. I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. Reply, guys. Maybe you've got one. Maybe you are one. If you're a public person online, and especially if you're a woman, you tend to attract a few fans or detractors who respond to every single thing you post. Sometimes those interactions can be obnoxious. Sometimes they can be so much worse that I'm noxious. Today's cyber is about a reply guy from hell, a person who, for almost two decades, has used the internet to wage sustained harassment campaigns against multiple women. It's a bizarre and, I will say at the top, disturbing story that involves Twitter DMs, revenge porn, and Animal Crossing. With me today is the journalist who broke the story, Motherboard Senior Staff Writer Anna Merlin. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so I think a good way to get into this is for you to... It's such a big, complicated, weird, awful story. Uh, Yeah. But I think a good place to start is with Sarah and James. Yes, Um, I agree with you. What happened? So, yeah. So a few years ago, um, a woman named Sarah, that is her real first name, we're withholding her last name to protect her privacy, um, got a DM on Twitter from a guy uh, calling himself James Bell, asking if she had an Amazon wish list. Um, if you're not familiar with this, a lot of women online, especially women in sex work, but not entirely, um, post Amazon wish lists of things that their admirers can buy for them. So asking if she had an Amazon wish list was kind of a way to signal, you know, that he found her attractive, that he might want to buy something for her, and that he was flirting. Uh, and he added, you know, all the Twitter honeys have one. So Sarah knew who James Bell was because they had a lot of mutuals on Twitter. They followed a lot of the same people. They had sort of interacted on Twitter in a public way before. Um, But what happened with this DM is that they began talking privately. And pretty quickly, it turned into a sort of online romantic relationship. Sarah says that she was never, you know, under the impression that they were in an exclusive romantic relationship or that it was, you know, quote unquote, real But the feelings were they began talking, you know, every night, falling asleep on the phone together, having phone sex, you know, engaging um, in in a degree of intimacy. But there were also some weird things that cropped up here. They never talked on video chat. James wouldn't allow Sarah, she says, to follow um, his private Instagram account. Uh, There were just some oddities. And so finally... Um, their dynamic was becoming really strained and James said that he was coming to the city in the Pacific Northwest where she lives and that they would finally get to meet up. And shortly before that happened, um, according to Sarah, she says that James kind of started an argument on purpose and, uh, that he then, you know, said that he wasn't, he wasn't going to come see her. She later came to believe that, you know, he had never come to town at all. And so, at this point, you might be saying, well, this sounds a little bit like a catfish situation. And um, the women involved allege that that is more or less what happened, but that it uh, got significantly worse after they started having questions about who James Bell really was. Because Sarah is not alone. Tons of women have had similar 
interactions with James Bell and a bunch of them say that those interactions turned sour or turned dangerous once they um, cut off contact with him or started asking him, you know, some questions about who he really was. Yeah, how many people did you talk to or how many women did you talk to that had interactions with this guy? So the people I actually talked to, uh, I talked to eight women who said that they had been harassed and a ninth woman who said that she sold uh, the person she knew as James Bell nude photos over the years and cut off contact with him when she found him sort of invasive in his requests, but did not say that she had been harassed. Um, There's also a, let's see, 10th woman whose court records I reviewed and I know uh, kind of through the grapevine that there are several more women who didn't feel like they were in a position to talk to me. So there are 10 kind of reflected in the story, but we um, have pretty good reason to believe that there are more. Do we have any idea of like what an upper limit is here? Like 20, 30? I don't. And I'm very curious about that. And I'm curious um, to hear if more people get in touch with me uh, now that this story is out there. How did you get, how, when did you first hear about this? So I heard about this fittingly enough on Twitter. I saw that a GoFundMe was circulating about a year ago that was titled um, something like, let me see, it was titled uh, Help Victims of Ongoing Cyber Stalking and Abuse. And so in it, Sarah and a group of other women, you know, said that they were raising money for legal expenses related to what they called an onslaught of harassment from one man. And they kind of laid out that they said that, you know, after these online relationships ended, he would retaliate, he would start harassing them from what they believe were, you know, spoofed phone numbers and email addresses, and then would harass and surveil them across a bunch of different websites, including things like Twitter, Duolingo, Venmo, Animal Crossing, um, you know, sites that I had never heard of being employed into harassment campaigns. And so at the time, uh, about a year ago, I reached out to Sarah to see if she could speak to me about this. And at the time, um, legally, she couldn't because she was pursuing a civil suit and she didn't want to mess that up. Um, And then more recently, a few months ago, a bunch of these women as a group kind of decided that they felt safe speaking to me now. So I was able to talk to them. And more importantly, I was able to find and get in touch with and extensively interview James Bell, uh, who was, you know, the subject of all of these harassment allegations. All right. For like, I've got a, a double question here, kind of first, sure. what is the persona James Bell? What is it that makes him maybe attractive is the wrong word, but what, what is it that makes him seem like a person that these women can initially get involved with and talk to? And then who is the actual person behind that persona? Okay. So on Twitter, the person known as James Bell was um, kind of funny, left-leaning, interacted with a bunch of kind of um, what I would call like Twitter feminists, like people who are, have big kind of online profiles um, as feminists or as like comedians, um, smart women, women with big profiles on Twitter, essentially is what I would say. And he was very uh, gifted at kind of at chat at Gab, you know, he, he, um, talked a good game in the parlance and they found him just easy to talk to and, you know, saw that he was interacting kind of respectfully with other women on Twitter, which, you know, if you're a woman on Twitter often makes a big difference in whether or not you choose to, you know, interact with a man that you don't know, because as we all know, Twitter can get uh, pretty weird pretty quickly. Um, and then when the women started talking to him privately and he started sending photos, they, you know, they also found that uh, they found him quite handsome. You know, he was sending photos of himself in a suit and tie or, you know, on a beach or, you know, in a car with the window down. And a lot of them found him, you know, 
physically attractive in addition to, you know, attractive in how he wrote. And so that was how some of these kind of online romantic relationships started to blossom. Um, so what I know about the real person behind the James Bell persona is that his name is Santiago Librado Belandres and that he lives in Southern California. Um, he insists to me that he legally changed his name to James Bell because he was having trouble finding employment with, you know, an obviously Latino name. Um, I could not find uh, evidence that he had legally changed his name. I asked him to provide it and he was not able to. Um, and from what I could tell, what is reflected in public records is that he has lived in rural Southern California with his family, um, essentially his whole life. And, you know, that's also where he's been served with uh, lawsuits by a couple of these different women. So in his telling, um, Mr. Bell or Mr. Belandres, the same person, um, says that he lives in San Diego now. Uh, he didn't want to say what he does for work because he was worried, um, you know, that these women would contact his work. And he said that he is actually the victim of harassment. You know, he said that he has these ex- online relationship partners who've become, you know, vengeful after the relationship ended and are now harassing him and harassing his family. And he, you know, expressed concern that like, even me contacting him was going to uh, bring that harassment back up. And get, get specific here when we're talking about the harassment and the, you share several different stories. They're all wildly similar. Um, the the pattern is pretty obvious, uh, uh, that you kind of detail here. So what happens when, first of all, what, what happens that makes a woman uncomfortable with him that they cut him off or attempt to cut him off? And then what happens? So a bunch of women, um, either cut off contact with him because they started to suspect that he was not being truthful about who he was because, you know, they had planned to meet up with him several times in person and he would cancel in ways that they found suspicious or in the case of several women in sex work who he had approached to sort of buy content, um, they cut off contact because he was too familiar. He was doing things like one woman in sex work told me that he was sort of repeatedly cold calling her work number, you know, without asking if she was free to chat first. Um, he would sort of offer to pay for content, but wasn't always able to do it um, and was sort of invasive in ways that crossed her professional boundaries. One woman um, had been sexting with him. And then once she got on the phone with him and heard his voice, just felt unsafe, just felt that his voice sounded angry, that it sounded like not the person she'd been talking to online, just sensed that something was wrong. So um, all of these women say that once they cut off contact or blocked him or unfollowed him or just stopped responding, his behavior would escalate, that he would start um, sending harassing communications from a bunch of different phone numbers, email addresses, Twitter accounts, that he would do things like surveil their behavior on Duolingo or Animal Crossing and then email them about it, you know, do things like accuse them of meeting new partners for sex on these, um, on these apps and platforms. Um, and that the behavior didn't stop no matter how many times they said, you know, this is unwelcome. I want you to stop. You're scaring me. For his part, uh, Mr. Belandra says, you know, that he would try to cut off relationships that he felt were becoming toxic or um, unhealthy. And that these women would, you know, try to come back into his life over and over again. And that then, you know, at some point, um, they then started accusing him of harassment, which he says is unfair. He said that the only thing he told me that the only thing that he is guilty of is, you know, emailing someone a few too many times after the relationship ended. And that this larger story about um, harassment uh, across multiple platforms is is invented, is made up. He He denies anything like this, any kind of misconduct. Yeah, it was kind of wild to me. And, and this is a pretty classic abuser technique, right? Um, 
I would say without characterizing Mr. Belandros or not as an abuser, you know, the what's in the story is for everybody to read. I will say that um, it is, yeah, sometimes the case that if you are doing something to another person, you will turn around and tell them that they are actually doing it to you. That is, yeah, that is not uncommon. And you spoke with him at length, right? Was it over the phone? Was it just via text and emails? We spoke once over the phone for quite a while. And then we spoke um, extensively over email after that. He was actually quite forthcoming and quite um, willing to participate in the process. Right. And he shared a lot of what he thought of as receipts with you. He did. Yes, he did. He had a lot of um, archived email exchanges and screenshots from like a really long time ago. You know, the um, earliest instance of this type of behavior that I was able to find was from 2003. Um, A woman who says that she was 15 at the time. Mr. Belandros disputes that. He says that she was 17 uh, when they began talking and eventually having sexual conversations. Um, And he actually shared with me screenshots of what he said were like files on his computer where he had all of their communications saved. You know, this is almost 20 years later. So yeah, he had a lot of um, documentation. I didn't feel like all of it was necessarily responsive to the questions that I was asking, but he absolutely, you know, like remembered the situations that we were talking about and offered his own perspective. And also you, you do a great job of just quoting what he sends you. Mm -hmm. Um, And not all of it, I would say, exonerates him in the way that perhaps he thinks. Can you walk um, us through some of that? So the the thing that I found striking was that, you know, he told me several times that he's never contacted people's families or their workplaces, um, things that these women say he did do. You know, some of them say that, like, you know, he contacted their mothers or their grandmothers or sent, you know, emails to them at work and then, you know, CC'd other people in their workplace. Um, one said that he was making comments on the Facebook page for her workplace, posing as her and being really offensive. Um, so, you know, one of the things that he sent me was a series of email exchanges. He said he was having with um, online harassers who were acting on behalf of the women. So like other reply guys, essentially on Twitter, who were then emailing him, you know, trying to defend these women, um, you know, and one interesting thing about it is that he tells one of them, you know, essentially, because you've contacted me, now I'm going to contact this woman's workplace. You know, it shows him very clearly um, making threats to do things that he told me he had never done. Um, like, yeah, contacting people's places of work. And of course, it's completely possible that he was just making that threat to get the emailer to go away. Um, but it was definitely a bit of a um, division between what he told me he had done and what he was telling other people he was going to do. Another thing I think is really important for this story, especially for the dudes that may be listening. Mm -hmm. um, We have a pretty radically different experience online than women do, I think. And I think it's hard, maybe not hard, hard is the wrong word, but sometimes we don't understand how stuff like this can affect your life. Mm -hmm. So can you kind of tell me what the women told you about how the harassment affected them and like the ways that they had to change the way they live their lives because of it. Right. So um, the earliest alleged victim, the woman who says that she was 15 and who Belandra says was 17 um, said that it essentially kept her for many years from having a life online. You know, um, she alleges that he improperly accessed and deleted a bunch of her social media accounts, something that he denies. Um, 
that he pretty relentlessly smeared her online. And she said that for a long time, she just simply didn't have an online presence, um, which, you know, as anybody can tell you is like affects you, affects your ability to make friends or find jobs or network socially or professionally, you know, having an online presence matters. Um, other women uh, told me that it just changed the way that they re- respond to reply guys. One of those people was Grace Grace uh, Spellman, who's a very popular kind of Twitter presence. Um, uh, and she told me that Mr. Belandres had been messaging her kind of casually for about six years, you know, just responding to things that she posted, you know, telling her that her mom looked great in family photos, um, things of that nature. She just thought of him as kind of a casual social acquaintance online until one of her friends who's interviewed in the story said that um, he had actually been harassing her and shared some screenshots with her. And so Grace immediately went to Mr. Belandres and said, you know, uh, who are you? Who are you really? Show me a picture of your face. And um, she said that he immediately um, blocked her. Uh, he remembers this differently, obviously. But um, what she told me essentially is that it changed the way that she interacts with reply guys, you know, and that she is much more uh, hesitant to form social relationships with men online. <laughs> that she can still make friends with women online, but that with men, she is um, a lot more leery. And that was something that was shared by a number of these women, just that they would not consider meeting somebody on Twitter anymore, that they are, you know, sometimes have trouble with intimacy and new relationships and trusting someone and figuring out how someone can be trustworthy. So it's not just that it affected their lives online. It also caused them to ask themselves pretty um, central questions about how they could trust, trust their judgment. Grace is the one that ended up with like a video from her childhood online and has no idea whoever posted it, how it got, how they got it. Right. Yes, that's correct. Um, and again, she did, she suspects strongly that it was bell, but does not know. Yeah. Essentially what happened with grace is that after she messaged um, Mr. Belandres and said, you know, who are you? Show me your face. The person she knew is James bell, but who has acknowledged to me that uh, he it, that this was him um, almost immediately after a Twitter account started impersonating her, you know, saying, Hey, it's me, Grace. And then switched to showing what the account said were historical ledgers proving that her family had been slave owners, which is not true. Grace is actually um, part of the Spellman family for whom Spellman college is named, which is, you know, pretty, um, it, it, <laughs> intrinsically tied with the abolitionist movement. That's, that's the deal with her family. Um, and so she essentially was already kind of confused by that, but not necessarily freaked out. And then she said the same account, um, posted a very old photo or video of her and a sibling that she did not realize was online. And that, that she found very, very, very unsettling and frightening. All right, cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We are on with Anna Merlin talking about uh, the reply guy from hell. We will be right back after these messages. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, cyber listeners, this is Matthew. We are talking with Anna Merlin about the Reply Guy from Hell. Um, another, so there's all sorts of fascinating stories with, like buried in this this feature, and everyone should go and read it. Uh, mm-hmm. One that really stuck out to me was Alexandria, who was a woman who kind of struck back uh, and effectively ended the harassment right as right after it kind of began. Can you tell her story? I thought it was interesting. Yeah, the woman who is referred to in the piece as yes. Alexandra. So Alexandra is somebody who um, began talking to Belle on Twitter um, that transitioned into phone conversations um, where she you know, shared a lot of really personal stuff and kind of vented about things going on in her life, um, which of course transitioned into phone sex and kind of sexual interactions. Um, so she had sent him one intimate photo ever, she said, which she made for him in Snapchat and she put like a filter on it. So she knew where that photo came from. Um, So finally, after uh, many examples of him promising to meet up with her in various cities and not doing it, Alexandra says she decided to just block him and move on with her life. Um, And then, you know, he starts, according to her, calling and texting a lot and kind of escalating contact in a way that she found frightening. And then on Christmas or Christmas Eve of that year, he wrote her a note saying, um, you're on a website called, we redacted the name of the website, just saw you, thought you'd like a heads up. Good luck with all that. And so the website is a site that we are familiar with um, as a place where people post um, doxed photos and information about women and, and you know what is referred to as revenge porn. And so the photo that he showed her was the photo that she had made for him in Snapchat that she should, had not shared with anyone else. So while there is no proof that it was definitely him, she found it very suspect. Um, So she told me that uh, she called him after he sent her this text and initially just said, you know, this is really upsetting to me that a photo of this nature is out there online for me. It's making me feel very unsafe. It's making me feel suicidal. And then as their interaction kind of escalated, she said, you know, I know it was you. I know you posted this photo. No one else had it. Um, And when he denied it, she said, that she realized that this person was a threat to her um, and that she had to, as she told me, sound as crazy as possible so he'd never want to talk to me again. So what she did is something that I've never heard of anyone doing. Uh, She told, she basically decided to, you know, excuse me, like out crazy a person that she found threatening um, and unstable. And so she said that she would kill herself, that she had a lawyer, that she was going to expose him, that she was going to quote, carve his username in my chest and shoot myself in the head. Excuse me. Um, She called him dozens of times, which he had been doing to her. Um, And then she told him that she was a witch and that she would curse his bloodline and finally sent videos of herself performing a hex on him using Santa Muerte, who is like a revered figure in Mexican Catholic folklore and who is kind of who you would go to if you wanted to seek revenge on an enemy. And so she told me, um, I didn't let him win is how she put it. And so 
the photo pretty quickly disappeared off that website. And she said, um, he's never contacted me again. He's never messaged me. He's never tried to DM me. I've never had any emails from him. And as she put it, um, she said, I think he realized he had other girls he could terrorize. All right. So speaking of that specifically, mm-hmm. these other girls, they start to find each other. They did. How did, yeah, how did over- that happen? Right. So over a period of time, a bunch of these women kind of started putting together that um, other women were having the same experience. Um, The best sort of simplest way to describe it is that um, when Sarah started having what she considered like harassing experiences with Belle, she locked her Twitter account and started tweeting about it. She tweeted, you know, uh, I am being harassed by this person. This is the name that I think he has, James Bell. You know, I don't know what to do. And so um, a couple of other women who had already figured out that they all had kind of the same guy in common saw those tweets and said, oh my God, there are more. And so they started kind of talking together as a group and comparing notes and sharing their stories. At some point, um, you know, we're able to figure out the earliest victim, the person from 2003, uh, and so they they essentially, you know, as a group started figuring out that everything they thought had been only happening to them was allegedly also happening to multiple other women. So another question I have about all of this is what is the legality of what's going on here? I mean, mm-hmm. what he what this guy is doing is obviously wrong. But what are the legal lines and have there been legal repercussions Right. So again, he denies um, doing anything illegal, engaging in any kind of harassment, emailing anybody's family and properly accessing accounts like he just blanket denies all of this and says that the only thing he has ever done is email or call someone too many times after a relationship ended and that he feels like bad enough about that. Um, At the same time, a lot of the behavior that is alleged, for example, people's intimate photos showing up on, you know, doxing websites would seemingly be covered by revenge porn statutes, which multiple states have at this point. Um, I'd have to check. Let me see how many states have revenge porn laws now, but there are quite a few, nearly every state. Um, But there are a couple issues with that. The first is that virtually all of these laws make this kind of alleged behavior a misdemeanor uh, rather than anything more serious, which means that even if these cases were pursued, um, not a ton would come of it necessarily. Um, and revenge porn experts uh, told me, you know, that these laws are very inconsistently applied. And most of the women who went to the police, there were at least three who tried to seek, you know, criminal action against him said that it was not helpful. Uh, we had a woman in the UK named Amy, a woman in Canada that we call Lori, who is the woman who says she was 15 when the communication started. And then Sarah, who's in the Pacific Northwest. And all of them describe sort of similar interactions with the cops, which is that they didn't really see um, any danger here or any illegality. Uh, And, you know, in the case of Amy said that it was also her experience with the cops in the UK, she says, was kind of judgmental. You know, like, why were you sending intimate photos to this person in the first place? Why are you having a romantic relationship with someone on Twitter? What's wrong with you? So all of them have said that pursuing uh, anything through the criminal justice system has not worked. Um, What has worked is filing civil suits. And so two women, Sarah, and then an earlier woman in the Midwest named Andrea, whose exact name and location we're also withholding, have both filed civil suits against Mr. Belandres. In both cases, he failed to respond um, to those complaints. And so both women won default judgments against him. 
uh, Andrea's was in the amount of over $200,000 and Sarah's judgment is still being finalized, but it will also mm, be substantial. Is it, how hard is it to collect on those judgments? Yeah. So collecting is a whole different thing. Um, so I talked to Danielle Citron, who is a, you know, recognized expert in sort of online uh, harassment and cyber stalking and sort of digital privacy, especially what she calls sort of like intimate privacy. And she's also a law professor at um, UVA School of Law. And what she told me essentially is that it is um, incredibly common for people who to not collect on judgments, in part because a lot of people who engage in cyber stalking and harassment are not people with vast resources. Um, in a previous story that I wrote many years ago, she actually told me that such people are often referred to as like judgment proof because if you don't own anything and you don't have anything and you don't have any money and maybe you live at home with your family, you know, there's not a lot that can be kind of levied against you and you can't, you know, the saying goes, get blood from a stone if you're seeking um, to collect on your financial judgment. So, you know, there are a couple of things that can happen here. You can try to like garnish people's wages. You can try to put a lien on any property they own. But before you can do any of that, you have to do what's called domesticating a judgment and register it in the county where that person lives. So after you go through what has probably been a pretty expensive legal process for you, if your alleged um, harasser is located out of state, you're then going to have to hire another attorney in the state where they are and go through this whole process of registering or domesticating a judgment. So it is a very, very long process. Um, we know that in the case of Andrea, Mr. Belandres has never paid um, the judgment that was levied against him. He told me that he didn't know about it. Um, and he told me that he didn't know about Sarah's lawsuit or had known that she won a default judgment either. And he told me that Andrea's judgment has never come up on you know, his credit report or anything like that. Was he concerned about them at all or blasé? Uh, it was really hard for me to read how he felt about those. It was um, surprising to me that he said he didn't know about the lawsuits. He was aware of the GoFundMe that Sarah and these other women posted, like raising money for their legal expenses. Um, you know, by his own accounting, he has spent at least some amount of time paying attention to their online behavior. And, you know, so for him to not know about the lawsuits uh, was surprising to me, especially because in both instances, it sounds like um, family members of his were served. It, like, especially in Sarah's case, you know, we have notes from a process server, an older woman at one of his listed addresses was served and then got really upset, according to the process server and like, um, wouldn't accept the papers. And then when the process server put them down on a doorstep, like started throwing them into the street. So obviously, like you would think that if that was um, your relative, you would probably get a phone call being like, what's going on here? So essentially what he said to me about the lawsuits and the judgments is just like, you know, I'm going to have to figure out what's going on with that. That was that was his, was his response. So big picture stuff here, if we can mm -hmm. transition a little bit, you know, I think we've all heard versions of this kind of story before, like the guy yeah. that is catfishing, that is lying about who he is. Um, usually to multiple women. Uh, I think there's like a Netflix doc about a guy like this out right now. Yeah. How has the internet changed this phenomenon? Do you think? Um, I mean, I think that, you know, fundamentally this is a cliche, but we live a lot of our lives online. And so some of this behavior um, that might not have been as disruptive in the kind of nascent days of the internet now really can touch kind of every part of people's personal and professional lives. 
Um, you know, one victim who told me that she was kind of being surveilled on Duolingo and Animal Crossing just said, you know, like, I really wanted to just enjoy my stupid little game. I really wanted to just learn a language and I couldn't even do that. You know, so the alleged victims were telling me that for them, it felt like every time they touched their phones, every time they went to work, anytime they were trying to do anything, really, um, they were impacted all over again because there was no part of their lives that wasn't touched by by the Internet, by being online. So, you know, that's that is different. That is different than how it used to be. Um, and it means that, you know, somebody who in this case, none of these women have ever, ever, ever met and in many cases are nowhere near you know, has, has, they say, they allege, touched their lives in just really profound ways. How, how do people keep themselves safe? Right. So I think, um, first of all, the important thing to point out here is that it is the responsibility of the harasser or alleged harasser to stop it. You know what I mean? Like, ultimately, no matter how defensive you are, if somebody chooses to victimize you, that is on them, right? Um, the other sort of tools that I personally use are, you know, I do regular what we would call sort of privacy checkups to see about, you know, what kind of information I'm sharing. I also talk to my family members about what they're sharing. You know what I mean? I think we all have, for instance, a family member who doesn't realize that everything they're posting on Facebook is public. Um, and that can impact the privacy of their younger family members. So we talk a lot about that. We talk a lot about, you know, um, some people choose to do things like auto delete their tweets because they don't know what's out there. Um, for years, my Instagram was public and I finally stopped doing that because um, you just never know how people are going to use your photos. Uh, I think, you know, being super aware of whether or not your name, your phone number, your address are ending up on sort of common kind of scrubbing, like data scrubbing sites or data scouring sites is really important. You know, things like whitepages.com, a lot of people check and are like, oh, I had absolutely no idea that all of my information was there. And so if you find yourself, uh, find your address, find your phone number on sites that you don't want to be on, most of them have opt-out request pages. So you can literally Google the name of the site and then opt-out request and do that. So I always recommend that for people just to make their privacy a little bit more secure. I always recommend that you're just super aware of whether you have old social media profiles kind of pinging around out there and what they might say. Um, and also, you know, I think fundamentally, like... Uh, the hard thing here is that it is not unreasonable to make friends on Twitter. It's not unreasonable to meet people online. You know, how many of us have met our romantic partners through, I don't know, Tinder, Twitter DMs, like marriages have come from that. So it's not necessarily that meeting someone online for a friendship or a romantic relationship is wrong. Um, you know, I think what these women are reckoning with is that their usual sort of pattern of keeping themselves safe by referring to their kind of online social acquaintances and seeing how they were behaving, like didn't work, you know? And so that was scary and destabilizing. So it's a mixture of like, there are many things you can do to try to lock down your data even more. Ultimately, the, the question is for people who engage in this type of harassment, like, why are you doing this? What are you getting out of it? Like, what would it take for you to stop? How can you redirect your energy in more positive or productive ways? Yeah, I feel like those conversations are, are it's hard to break through the shell and the persona with those people to even get them to consider that angle. Like all of your interactions with Bell, it just, he constantly paints himself as the victim, right? Yeah. And I have no doubt that he thinks of himself as being the victim in this situation. You know, he's alleged that these women were contacting his mom and other family members um, who I asked to speak to and, you know, was not able to. 
Um, so yeah, I have no doubt that he thinks of himself as a victim here. Um, in other stories I've done or in other cases I've looked at, you know, people know that they're engaging in like troll behavior, you know, people on the, the infamous message boards that we all know about understand that they're engaging in harassment. Um, but they think it's funny or they think the target is a worthy target. You know what I mean? Whether they're doing it because they are, you know, bigoted and hate Jews and hate black people and think it's fine to harass those people online, whether they have joined the sort of ill-advised and bigoted campaign against trans people under the guise of child protection, you know, uh, people can justify just about anything to themselves. Anna Merlin, thank you so much for coming on to the show and walking us through this. The piece is up at motherboard.vice.com. It's a really good one. I encourage everyone to go out there and read it. Thank you so much. All right, cyber listeners, that's all for this episode. If you like the show, go ahead and follow us on Twitch. We are at twitch.tv forward slash motherboard TV, where we are doing live versions of some of the episodes. Uh, And please follow us on iTunes or wherever fine pods are casted. We will see you twice next week with uh, more harrowing tales from the internet and the wonderful future that we're all building together. 30,000 inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.